0: You know, last week, Easter was just amazing. It was, it was so awesome to be in this room to see what God was doing. And, and as we got through Easter last week and, and we came for, for lunch, we were eating lunch together, and it made us think back to three years ago. Remember what happened three years ago? Three years ago was when the, the coronavirus was just taken off and we weren't sure exactly what it was and what was happening. And so we scrambled, uh, everyone scrambled to figure out how do you prevent the spread of this, this coronavirus? And so we did Easter online. And that was a unique season as a church. That was a unique time to figure out how do you, uh, how do, you do church differently in that, seating, in that season. And, uh, and it, was, it was fun to have Easter last week because it really felt like, I really felt like maybe this was like the closest to, to pre-COVID of an Easter celebration that we had. It was just really good. It was, it was good to be able to, to worship together and celebrate the resurrection and not worry about, about masks and social distancing and some of those other things. And not that, not that those things aren't important. They are. But it was just great to be able to gather together and not have that element kind of lingering over us like it had the past couple uh, of years. But one of the things I was thinking about is as we come through that season, it's interesting how we view threats towards the church. Because in that season of COVID, it's interesting how many of us as Christians, we felt the greatest threat to the church was the government uh, authorities putting stipulations on what the church can and cannot do. I mean, let me just ask this. If you were to say, what is the greatest threat on the church? What is the greatest threat to stop the church from being the church? What is the greatest threat to our faith? Man, there are some of us in this room that would say the greatest threat to our faith is the government, trying to restrict how we worship, trying to restrict when we worship, what we worship, all those things. We would feel that's the greatest threat to the mission of God. There are others of us in this room that we ask that question, what is the greatest threat to the church? We say, well, we live in this postmodern society. Right? We live in this postmodern society where anything goes and you can uh, do whatever you want to do. So, some would say that when we insist that Jesus is the only way to have a relationship with God, that, that exclusivity becomes the greatest threat to Christianity. If, if the church could just be more accepting that there are more ways for people to come to God, if we didn't stand on all this biblical truth, then maybe the church would be more relevant. Maybe the church would reach more people. And so maybe the greatest threat to the church is that we stand for what this book teaches. We could come up with a long list of threats against the church. There are people that would say technology is preventing uh, meaningful relationships within the church. And that's the greatest threat to the church. Some people would say megachurches and the whole conglomerate that becomes a megachurch, that's the greatest threat to the church because then it's just coming and checking a box instead of actually having relationships within, uh, with people. Some would say the greatest threat to the church is the lack of leadership. Not having strong, biblically called and equipped leaders to lead the church. Now we could come up with this long list. That's an interesting question to think about. What is the greatest threat to the church? If Satan was going to stop the mission of God, if he was going to stop the church from becoming a movement that transforms families and cities in our world, what would he do? How would he do that? You know, I was thinking about this. I grew up, I, I don't know. You, I grew up a sports fan. I've always been a sports fan. I grew up and I loved the the Mariners and the Seahawks from a childhood. My dad, I remember my dad and I used to listen, listen to the Mariners games on the radio. He was blind so he couldn't watch the TV so we'd sit and listen to it on the radio. I used to love that. And I remember in the 90s, I had the chance uh, playing Little League baseball. I played for the, 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 the Reds, so we had this red jersey and this red hat. And Seattle Mariners would always do the Little League Day. I don't know if you guys remember this. You remember this with your kids or maybe growing up. And the Little League Day was where uh, the Mariners would invite all the Little League teams to come. And, and they'd come to the game. They'd watch the game. And then they'd get to go out on the field and run around the outside uh, uh, warning track along the field. And I remember that being so excited. We're in the kingdom, right? We're running around this track, and I'm like, someday I'm gonna be like Ken Griffey Jr. Now, the problem was, I just wasn't that talented. I wasn't that coordinated to be able to accomplish that very, very much further. But, but I remember going to that field, being on that field, and thinking, man, if I could just be like Ken Griffey Jr. Then I remember uh, a couple years later, this is probably like 1995, 1996. My neighbor Dan and his dad said, hey, you want to come with us? We're going to go watch the Seahawks play at the Kingdome. And I'm like, yes, this is awesome. And I remember we went up in the nosebleed section at the very top of that dome, and we we're looking down, and I'm watching Brian Blades. Anybody remember that name? Goes back a little while, right? Mariner or uh, Seahawks wide receiver. I remember watching that and be like, man, this is awesome. Now, if you grew up rooting for the Mariners and the, and the Seahawks back in the 80s and 90s, do you remember what happened on March 24th of the year 2000? I, I lied, it's March 26th of the year 2000. That was a significant day in Seattle sports history. That was the day that they destroyed the kingdom. You guys remember that? Guys remember that? And the question, I should have put the video up here. I forgot to do this, but, but when you watch the kingdom explode, uh, it took 16.5 seconds for that building to come tumbling down. And how did they do that? How did they bring that huge monstrosity of a building down in 16 seconds? They imploded it from the inside out. They set 5,000 plus charges of dynamite on the ribs and the columns of that building that was at that time the world's largest dome with a concrete ceiling. And they set those charges to go, and that building was down in 16.5 seconds. You think maybe that's an example of how Satan could attack the church? Not by dynamite, not talking about that, but attacking the church from the inside. We're in this book uh, going through the series. Uh, <laughs> we're in a series going through the book of Acts, and, uh, which is a, a great story for us to read we're looking at how Jesus established the early church and how the early church wasn't just an institution that you come and you worship and you receive some religious services, but the early church was a movement that changed everything it touched, that impacted cities and families and regions and countries and had a huge impact on the world. And we're reading this book to say, God, how could you do that with us? How could we, as Restoration Church, as a church in Yakima, how could we become a movement that begins to change families and change our city and change our state and change everything around us? And so far, we are four chapters into this book, and it has been awesome. Hasn't it been? I mean, it has been so great. The the church fueled by the Holy Spirit, they have the message of the resurrection of Jesus, and the church is on fire. It is on fire. There are thousands upon thousands of people being added to the church every single day. In fact, Acts chapter 4, it says that the church, they were of one mind and of one soul, which means they had this tremendous unity. They're so connected to one another. They were committed to the message. They were committed to one another. So they had this this incredible unity and, and, and kinship where it wasn't just we come and we worship together and we say hi, then we go on our way. They actually lived life together. Said, what you're going through, man, I'm with you. I'm going through it with you. We're, we're together. We're united in this. And it wasn't just this, this, this uh, unity in that regards. It went further than that. Because chapter 4 says that the people were actually uh, selling their land. They're selling their, their property. And they're taking the proceeds and giving it to the church so the church could be used to meet the needs of each other. Like this is pretty remarkable. These people are so committed to one another where it's not just this, oh yeah, we're friends, we're tight. But they actually show it and say, I'm going to sell what I've got because you've got a need and I want to meet that need. So I'm going to give you what I've got and Lord use it. In fact, uh, the early church, uh, there's one of the stories of the early churches where they were so, they, they they were an impoverished church, but they begged for the opportunity to contribute to meet each other's needs. It's pretty remarkable what God was doing in the early church. And a result of that, Scripture says that there was great grace and great power that came upon the church. They are well on their way to become Movement, but that's a threat, it's a threat to Satan. Of course, Satan is going to do everything he can to try and stop the church from becoming a movement. Of course, Satan is going to say, No, I don't want these people following Jesus, I don't want them changing the world, I want to have control. And so, what does Satan do? Remember in chapter four, he got the religious authorities to arrest Peter and John, threw them into prison because they preached about Jesus. And then they threatened them and said, hey, listen, listen, you cannot preach about Jesus anymore. And what did that do to those disciples? It actually emboldened them. They became more passionate about spreading the message of Jesus. They said, hey, we cannot listen to men and not to God. We obey God more than man. And so here's Satan saying, man, I tried to stop the the, the church from being a movement by doing something religious authorities, and that didn't work. So now what is Satan going to do? And this is important. Satan isn't going to try and stop the church through government restriction. He's not going to try and stop the church by getting them to to water down the message. No, very much like the kingdom. Satan's going to try and destroy the church from the inside out. In our text today that Jake read for us, we saw that Satan invades the church through hypocrisy. Through hypocrisy amongst the Christians, and he uses that to try and stop the mission of God in the world. Today, we're looking at two stories, two different people. We're looking at a the, the, uh, guy by the name of Barnabas, and we're looking at a guy by the name of an Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. And these are going to be the two stories that we're going to uh, uh, look at the opposites. The first one, we start in verse 36. This is a guy by the name of of Barnabas. And he's a good example of what it means to be a part of the church. It says in verse 36, Acts chapter 4, verse 36. Joseph called Barnabas the son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, and he laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. Now, I will say, Barnabas is probably one of my favorite characters in the entire Bible. He's one of the most important characters in the early church. Barnabas is a guy who is constantly encouraging other people. That's why they give him the name, Son of Encouragement. And we see him constantly doing this. In fact, in a couple chapters, we'll get to what the story where, where Paul, a guy who is known by Saul, who is a persecutor of the church, he's trying to stop the spread of the church. God miraculously saves him, and he becomes a Christian. The problem is because he was known as being a bad guy. Nobody wanted to, to trust him. Nobody liked him. And you know the first, one of the first guys to come alongside Paul and say, hey, we got to believe in this guy. He's legit. Barnabas. Barnabas is like, hey, Paul, he is a Christian. Now he loves Jesus. We need to get on his side. We need to support him. A little bit later when the church begins to expand from primarily from being Jews in, in Jerusalem into the Gentiles, into the rest of the world, You know, it's Barnabas who's loving these new believers. It's Barnabas who's loving and shepherding and pastoring the new believers who are coming to faith in Jesus. There's another story where a guy by the name of John Mark, he kind of blows it big time on a mission trip with the Apostle Paul, makes a big mistake. And it's Barnabas who becomes an advocate for John Mark and says, hey, we need to give this guy another chance. Barnabas is an awesome guy. He's such an encouragement. He's the kind of guy I want to be like. Well, here in chapter four, when we're introduced to Barnabas, we see him selling property and donating the proceeds to the church, to the mission, and to the people of God. And again, this wasn't a requirement. It's not like they said, hey, Barnabas, you have to do this. No, Barnabas was so committed to to the mission of God and to the people of God that he's like, I can't help but want to, to do this. And this shows our shows his heart. You know, it reminds me of the story that Jesus said in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, there's a story where Jesus says, Imagine you find this, this this great treasure, this this valuable treasure. He said, You would sell everything you had to buy the field just to have that treasure. See, this is a picture of what happens when we place our faith in Jesus. Our salvation in Jesus, man, it is so valuable. That nothing in this world, no amount of value, of wealth, uh, of property, uh, of whatever we can have, nothing compares to salvation in Jesus. This is what Barnabas experienced. He's like, man, this Jesus is greater. So I've got this field and sure I could use it, but man, Jesus is greater. So I'm going to take what I've got. I'm going to contribute. So that way the message of Jesus keeps going out and gets spread. This is what happens when we experience salvation is we begin to lose hold on the things of this world. We no longer are we drawing our status and our pride and our our security and our trust from our wealth and our resources. Now it's from Jesus. So now those things, our wealth and our resources, we hold with open hands. Say, man, these things aren't important to me as they once were. In fact, I've heard a pastor say it like this. You often see somebody's heart by following what they will sacrifice for or what they won't sacrifice for. You want to know what someone loves? What do they sacrifice for? What won't they sacrifice for? What do they do with their time, their treasure, and their talent? That'll tell you where their heart is truly dedicated. Now, undoubtedly, I think about this church. I think about this is Barnabas. Like, everybody would have loved this guy, Right? I mean, this would have been a guy that I'd be like, man, I want to hang out with him. I want some of what he's got. I want to learn from him. I want to be around him. Like that's it's pretty remarkable to have that example of faith and commitment to Jesus. But look what happens on the very next verse. Chapter five, verse one. See that word, but? That's a big but right there. At this point, the church has been pretty amazing. At this point, the church has done nothing wrong, but now we see this big butt in Acts 5, verse 1. See, the reality is, many of us are looking for a, a perfect church. Many of us are going through the season where we're like, hey, I'm going to go try this church out, and this church out, and this church out, because we're looking for a perfect church. And we keep trying them out, and we're like, man, every time I go to the church, the church isn't perfect. What's going on? In fact, there's a, a story where a man goes up to Charles Spurgeon, who's an old dead guy now, uh, goes up to Charles Spurgeon. He's like, hey, I'm looking for the perfect church. Where should I go? And Charles Spurgeon says, listen, if you do find a perfect church, don't join it because it won't be perfect anymore. You know, we spend all this time looking for the perfect church. But even in this early church, as great as they have been, there's still struggle. There's still sin. There's still problems. In fact, as this early church is becoming a movement to impact and shape everything around them, do you know the rest of the New Testament? I mean, from this point, the rest of the New Testament, isn't it Peter and Paul writing letters to fix the problems in the churches? I mean, isn't that what we read about Paul writing this church and say, hey, you guys got this all wrong. You got to fix this. I don't want you to be discouraged by the butts in the church. Because we recognize Satan will do everything in his power to stop the church from becoming a movement. And oftentimes he does it through us, through us as Christians, that we aren't perfect. We create problems. And if we give up on the church because the church isn't perfect, do you realize that we are essentially allowing Satan to gain ground, to stop the movement of God, to stop the mission of God, to stop lives being transformed because we've given up on the bride of Christ because she's not perfect. Chapter 5, verse 1, Satan shows up. It says, a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, they sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, they kept back a portion for himself from some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Here's this guy, Ananias, and his wife, Sapphira. They're looking at the example of Barnabas and being like, wow, look how everybody respects Barnabas. Everybody loves Barnabas. Everybody wants to be like Barnabas. He's awesome. He got that recognition. They're like, we want to be like that. So they go and they sell the land and they make this proclamation. Hey, we're giving the proceeds to the church. When secretly, they kept a portion back to themselves. Yet yeah, they took credit for giving the whole thing. That's what the issue was. The problem wasn't the amount of money. The problem was they, they, they took credit for giving the whole thing when they didn't really give the whole thing. This is what we call hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when we portray ourselves to be one way that is not in reality to who we are. Hypocrisy is when we try to appear more religious or godly or spiritual than we really are. So hypocrisy is. And the question is, well, well why would someone be a hypocrite? Why would, why would they do this? Why would they lie and deceive the church? Well, there's any number of reasons. Maybe Ananias and Sapphira, maybe they were new to the faith. Maybe they wanted to, to fast-track to get on the inside, to be advanced in the church or to really belong. Maybe like many of us, Ananias and Sapphira, they craved the special recognition. They wanted to look more spiritual. They wanted people to think highly of them. They wanted the esteem of being someone who does something great. Maybe they just struggled with greed and love of money. I would say that in the church, most of the time, our hypocrisy comes because we love people's attention more than we love God's attention. We want the applause of people rather than the applause of man. No, that's wrong. We want the applause of man rather than the applause of God. Feels good to have people value us and tell us how great we are. We love hearing that. So we will fake it so we hear that without being real before God. Peter knows what's going on, and Peter's going to confront Ananias in verse 3. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Did you hear that? Why did Satan fill your heart? Did you know that even as a Christian that our heart can be filled with Satan? Now, I know as Christians, like as Christians, like like our salvation is secure in Jesus. We cannot lose our salvation. Once you place your faith in Jesus, you belong to him. Like we believe that. And as Christians, I know we have these debates on, well, we can't be possessed by a demon and some weird things like that. And that's true. But here in this text, we believe Ananias and Sapphira are Christians. And the text actually says that Satan filled their heart. In fact, reminds me of what Jesus said to Peter in Luke chapter 22. Jesus said, watch out, because Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Reminds me that Satan is a roaring lion, is a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. See, we think about the or we think about the church, we think about the greatest threat to the church. I don't think the greatest threat to the church is turning the government authorities against us. I don't think the greatest threat to the church is removing God from the public school system. I don't think the greatest threat to the church is a media or anything else that can be said about us. I think the greatest threat to the church is when we allow Satan into our hearts and we allow him to do damage to the church from the inside out through hypocrisy. Peter confronts Ananias and says, Ananias, verse 3, why, have you, why has Satan filled your heart to cause you to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back a part of the proceeds from yourself? Verse 4, while it remained unsold, was it not your own? And after you sold it, was it still not at your disposal? Why have you, contri- why have you contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, you have lied to God. He's like, Ananias, this land was yours. You were free to do whatever you wanted to do. When you sold it, that was your money. You could do whatever you wanted to. You had the freedom. The issue was not about the money. The issue was not about how much money he gave and what he didn't give. The issue was the hypocrisy. The issue was you lied about it. You claimed to do this great deed while secretly keeping back some of it for yourself. You claim to be more religious, and you, really, you, you, you did this to get applause of man. You wanted to look more spiritual than you really are. Ananias, you wanted to be admired and honored and respected and adored, just like Barnabas. But you didn't actually deserve the recognition. And Peter says, as a result of that, you've allowed your heart to be filled by Satan to be under Satan's control. One of the things that strikes me in this is Peter says, listen, Ananias, you haven't lied to man. You haven't lied to the church. You haven't lied to the leaders. You haven't lied to the people. Well, you have, but actually what you're doing is you're lying to God. When you lie to the church, you're actually skipping over the church. You're actually lying directly to God. And as a result, verse 5 It says, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. The young men rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. Now, I'll just say, we don't have the young men here too. They're all at retreat. So I hope no one dies this morning because I don't know if we got anybody who wants to be doing that job today. It's a young man's job. But it wasn't just Ananias that was guilty of this. His wife was guilty as well. It says in verse seven, that after three hours, his wife came in. I'm just gonna pause right there. I did a little reading in the Greek and, and what I found out in the Greek is when it says, after three hours, what happened was Sapphire was upstairs getting ready for church in the bathroom. And she said, Ananias, five more minutes. And so Ananias goes to church. And three hours later, his wife shows up to church. That's what happened. That's what, uh, it may, maybe a loose translation of the Greek, but I think uh, something like that. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. That was funny. <laughs> Again, my wife's not here, so sometimes you just never know what's coming. Uh, uh, I will hear about it. After three hours, his wife came in, and Peter said to her, verse 8, tell me whether you sold the land for so much money? And she said, yes, for so much money. And Peter said, how is it that you have agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and will carry you out. And immediately, she fell down and breathed her last. Those young men came in, found her dead, carried her out, and buried her next to her husband. Now, one of the things I would encourage you, and that's one of the things I want to help teach to understand how to read the Bible. Sometimes you read the Bible, and you've got to stop and ask some questions. Why did this just happen? Why did there be such a severe consequence to Ananias and Sapphira? What about grace? Grace. What about second chances? Like, why this sudden, drastic thing? I think the reason, the answer I came up with, is I think this is a pivotal time in Christianity. This is a pivotal time in the church. Remember, Jesus told his disciples, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I think in the early church, this is a pivotal time where everything is magnified, good and bad. In fact, uh, drop down just a couple of verses, verse 15. Verse 15, it says that people were bringing their, their, their sick people to the disciples. You've got the lame and the disease, the people that can't walk, they're bringing them to the disciples. And it actually says that when Peter's shadow was just cast on them, that people would be healed. Now, like, my shadow doesn't have any power. Like, I've never seen that happen in my day and age. So you see in the early church, like everything is magnified. God is doing something special to establish his church. He's trying to build a foundation on the resurrection of Jesus, on the word of God, the unity of the believers. There's something special happening. And just as important as as building the foundation of the church on those things, I think God knows the danger of hypocrisy, the danger of allowing Satan into our hearts, to deceive us, to mask who we really are, cause us to pretend, to have deceit. And I think this sudden, drastic, severe consequence maybe is a picture to the church that this hypocrisy has a power to destroy the church. In the very beginning, God wants to set the standard, we can't allow this. This cannot be a part of the church. I think this consequence is God saying a precedent that hypocrisy has got to be stamped out. It cannot be tolerated. It is too dangerous. You see the contrast between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas, what is he living for? He is living to please God. God alone. God, you're the one I'm, I'm serving. You're the one I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to, it's not about me. It's not about others. It's about you. Ananias and Sapphira, who are they living for? Themselves? Other people's recognition? And as a result, they allowed Satan to fill their hearts and be used by Satan to try and destroy the church. In fact, here's, here's my Summary of this passage, here's, here's what I'd love for you to, to, to take away from this. Is that hypocrisy is Satan's attack to destroy the church and stop the mission of God from the inside out. I can't say it clearly enough. I think hypocrisy is the greatest threat to the church. It is how Satan attacks the church to destroy the church, to stop the mission of God, to stop the church from becoming a movement from the inside out. I mean, think about this. What is, what is the number one complaint in the world about the church? It's not us not being relevant. It's not the demands of the Bible. The number one complaint that people have about the church is our hypocrisy. Is our hypocrisy that we put on these facades to appear holy and righteous and better than we really are and not actually live lives that match what we claim. And let me just caution us, because sometimes it's easy for us to read the Bible and think that's them. That's Ananias and Sapphira. No, this is true of Ananias and Sapphira, as well as you and I. We have to recognize Satan would love nothing more than to fill our hearts, to cause us to pretend to be better than we really are, to be more concerned about what others think about us rather than what God thinks about us. Because we may not lie about our offering like Ananias and Sapphira, but we are just like Ananias and Sapphira in so many different ways. When we tell people, hey, I'm gonna pray for you, I'll pray for you, and we never do that. Do you know what that makes us? Hypocrite, don't raise your hand. You know what happens when we make people think we have it all together when we don't? You know what that makes us? Like Ananias and Sapphira, we're hypocrites. Don't raise your hand. You know what happens when we present ourselves one way on social media, but actually don't have our lives match up to that? Yeah, we're hypocrites. You don't have to raise your hand and tell me that's you. You don't need to do that. You know what happens when we misrepresent and exaggerate our our, uh, faithfulness and the great things we do for God? Oh, man, I, I did all these great things for you, God. That makes us hypocrites. You know what happens when we condemn other people for struggling with sin while acting like we don't harbor our own or acting as if we don't have any sin? You know what that makes us? Hypocrites. Guilty just like Ananias and Sapphira. You know what happens when we walk into church and the greeter says, how you doing? And we put a smile and say, oh, I'm wonderful. When in really our last week, everything fell apart and life was horrible. You know what that makes us? Hypocrites. You know what happens when we aren't real with our struggles? We become hypocrites. I remember church setting. Church setting, I'm not going to say who it was. Talking with somebody, and was like, hey, how can I pray for you? How can I, I'd love to be able to pray for you specifically. How can I pray for you? And the response was this. Their response was, you know, my biggest struggle, I'm just not praying enough. You know, I'm just not praying. Would you pray that I pray more? And I'm like, what about your pride? What about your bitterness? What about your, 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 your hostility you have with another person in this church? What about those things? Oh, my biggest struggle, I'm just not praying enough. You know what you become? A hypocrite. Listen, if you're not a Christian here today, I, I'm glad you're here. But right now, I just want to talk as Christians for a moment. Shame on us. You understand how damaging hypocrisy is to our faith and to what God is trying to accomplish in our world? Parents, you want to destroy your children's faith? Then with your mouth, say one thing, but with your actions, do something totally different. You don't have to try very hard to do that. You will destroy their faith in a moment. Jim Elliott was a missionary who got martyred a long time ago. (laughs) He said, it's funny listening to Christians sing our our Christian songs, right? Because we come to church and we sing the songs, I surrender all. He's like, you know what's funny? If we really did then why are there more missionaries? Why isn't there more ministry happening? He said this. He said, Christians don't tell lies. Christians sing them. Ouch. (laughs) That cuts deep. You know, I'll just, I got to share, I fear the role that I'm in as pastor. Because I get the opportunity to come up on this platform every week and talk about spiritual things. The last thing I want to do is stand up here and try to look holier than I really am. In fact, I remember years ago, a mentor of mine said this. He said, a pastor's job it's to set an example of what it looks like to be a successful Christian. You can't let anybody know your struggles. You have to project holiness and godliness and success. And I tell you what, that was a day I almost said I'm not going to be a pastor. Uh, I'm not up here because I've got it all figured out. I I'm not up here because I'm holier than anyone else in this room. There's a lot of people holier than I. I'm not afraid to admit I'm an idiot. I'm a 100% idiot. There are dark parts in my heart that God is still working on and chiseling on that I have to continue to repent and confess. And I say this oftentimes. I say, what I do up here is... I open the Word of God and say, God, you need to do something in me. And I preach to myself, and you all just get to listen. You guys are like, man, that's a great message. It spoke to me, and I'm like, I'm preaching to myself. This message on hypocrisy is not for you. It's for me, because I don't want to stand up here and project. Look how great I am, because I know I'm not. Ministry is tough. I hope you don't hear me talk about how hard ministry is and how much we sacrifice for the ministry because if I'm being honest like deep parts of my heart long for people's approval probably shaped by my childhood probably shaped by experiences I've been through I've been a people pleaser since I was a child and I'll be honest, there's times when I'm like, oh, I want to tell you how hard it is to be a pastor and how hard it is to do what I do. Because I want to project holiness. I want you to say, man, look how great that guy is. It's easy for us to portray a spiritual front to make an impression. And I'll just say this again, shame on us Christians. Christians. Shame on us for trying to be something we're not, for not being real with who we are and where we're at. All right, what do we do? (laughs) I've gone long enough. How do we address this tendency to prioritize other people's opinions rather than God? How do we address this hypocrisy to pretend to be more spiritual than we really are? It's in the text. Verse 11 it says, great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard these things. We deal with our hypocrisy through the fear of God. You see, fear, we think about fear, we think about, we think about terror. We think about like that big bad guy. Oh, I'm gonna come and get you. Arr! Fear is more than that. Fear is respect and power. In fact, uh, Pastor John Piper gives an illustration he said, imagine, imagine you're caught outside in a major storm, right? You're in the storm, you're outside, there's the rain, there's the thunder, there's wind. When you're in that storm and it's bearing down on you, like there's, there's a feeling of terror over you. Like, oh crap, am I going to survive this? I'm scared to death, right? That's one type of fear. But imagine you get put into a safe place. You're in a safe building, and the storm is all around you. There's still a feeling of fear, but it's a different kind of fear. It's not a feeling of terror. It's a feeling of awe, of recognition of the storm's power, recognition of the majesty and the might of the storm. You know that storm is something that you should not trifle with. That is a difference between genuine fear of God and terror. See, as Christians, God has offered us a safe place to dwell. He offered his son so that our sin could be forgiven, so that we could be redeemed, so we wouldn't be bound by Satan and sin and death and hell. That as we place our faith in Jesus, we don't have to fear God. We don't have to fear that he's a cruel tyrant looking to destroy us. No, we fear him not as an angry father or an angry judge, but as a loving father. A loving father who pursues good for us. And that fear is a reverential fear, an awe, a majesty, a respect. This is why Proverbs 1 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That from the safety of the relationship with Jesus, our fear is a healthy fear that leads us to respect and honor God. In fact, think about that great hymn, Amazing Grace. Verse 2 says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." When we correctly fear God, revere him, respect him, honor him, causes us to live right before him. So let me just ask some questions to invoke our fear of God. Are you deceitful in your faith? Try and look more spiritual than you really are. Do you minimize your struggles and emphasize all the good that you do? Do you try and project that you've got it all figured out? Are there areas of your life that you are unwilling to surrender to God? Ananias and Sapphira, they're unwilling to surrender their their, their money to God. They're unwilling to surrender uh, their uh, reputation. Let me ask you are you willing to trust God with your resources? Are you willing to trust God? with your reputation? Is he enough for you? Again, I think the greatest threat to our faith, to the church, and not just this church, but to the church in general, it's not government authorities restricting what we do. It's not technology. It's not, it is hypocrisy. You ever notice how, Sometimes it feels like the church is a breeding ground for hypocrisy. See, I don't, know, I don't know when this happened. It seemed like, I don't know, I don't know when it happened. This idea came into the church, that the church is a place where you go and, and people have it all figured out. That's not what the church is. And I want to be clear here at Restoration Church, one of the things we say is we're a people who celebrate progress rather than Perfection is we're not looking for perfect people at restoration church. We're looking for progress. And you know what that means? I want you to hear this today. You don't got to be perfect. We're not expecting that from you. You don't have to fake it. You don't have to pretend to be better than you really are. Because when you do, you stunt your own growth. You stunt the progress of God in your life. You allow room for Satan to come in and fill your heart. No restoration, church. See, think about TV. We become hypocrites when we try and put on a show. We're going to come in and we're going to look the part. We're going to play the part of a good Christian. Look at me, holier than everything else. No, we're not to be a sitcom. We're to be reality TV. You know the great thing about reality TV is? It's messy. People screw up. And that's okay. Because our goal is not to have a bunch of perfect people in here. Our goal is to say, here's where I'm at. I'm taking steps to get to here. And to get to here, we're looking for progress, not perfection. And you know what happens when we, as Christians and churches, when we figure this out? We figure out how to fear God, to live in transparency, to be honest with our struggles. To not try and pretend we're better than we're, you know what happens? That is when the church becomes a movement. That is when the church has power. That is where we see God on the move, changing lives and changing families and changing cities and changing churches and doing a marvelous work. When we are willing to be transparent and honest not faking it, not trying to be greater than we really are. That's why we say it again and again and again. I'm not going to celebrate perfection up here. We want to tell stories of progress. Here's where I'm at. I've taken a step. I fell down. I struggled, but I got back up. And guess what we would do for that? That's what we're looking for. Progress rather than perfection. Perfection. Let's pray.